0: Cybercrime crime has reached a level that we could have never imagined. And this world is becoming digitized and we're becoming more vulnerable every day. With all of that being said, I'm in Washington, D.C. I can get on the bus. I can go 10 miles around the city. I can get on the metro. I can go into any building in the world's most powerful city. And there is not one sign that tells you that you should be digitally Secure.
1: Welcome to the Reimagining Cyber podcast, where we share short and to the point perspectives on the cyber landscape. It's all about engaging yet casual conversations on what organizations are doing to reimagine their cyber programs while ensuring their business objectives are top priority. With my co-host, Stan Wiseman, Head of Security Strategist, I'm Rob Orego, Chief Security Strategist, and this is Reimagining Cyber. So, Stan, who do we have joining us for this episode?
2: Rob, our guest today is Michael Eccles. Mike is a senior cybersecurity executive and critical infrastructure protection strategist working with corporate leaders and government officials to make the nation more resilient. He's leading a revolution to stand up and support information sharing and analysis organizations, or ISOs. As such, Mike leads a global effort to harmonize cyber threat information sharing. And while serving in the government, Mike managed cyber resiliency programs for the U.S. Department of Homeland Security while assisting in the advancement of risk reduction. And as the point person for the rollout, of the President Obama Executive Order 13691, Mike developed a national program for ISOs. He's also released a book in 2020 entitled, Secure Cyber Life, The Government Is Not Coming to Save You, which is pretty ominous. Mike, it's great to have you with us today.
0: Thank you. Glad to be here.
1: So, Michael, one of the things I think would be interesting to share with the, the audience is what happened post 9-11 to where we are now. Kind of that that journey that we've been on, uh, a lot of what's driven you to lead the creation of the ISOs. But just kind of walk us through that that timeline, if you will.
0: Sure. Uh, 9-11 uh, occurred and the nation was awakened to the fact that critical infrastructure protection is incredibly important. Uh, As we saw, uh, three planes, I believe, went down, but it affected the financial stability of the nation from that event. And so we moved towards a strong public-private partnership because the government realized they could not protect everything. So they needed for critical infrastructure owners to do their part. In using good risk management techniques. So around 2005, you saw the development of the National Infrastructure Protection Program. Following that, you saw the uh, development of a national response framework. That's how government and industry will work together to respond. A couple of years later, there was a National Cyber Incident Response Plan. That response plan shows how Government and industry work together when there's a major national level cyber event. They can scale up who's in charge, how things work and then how we go back to steady state and scale down. Around 2013, one of the lessons uh, that we learned from 9-11 was employed. After 9-11, we gave out a lot of grants to states, locals, uh, corporations, uh, and private sector organizations to implement resilience programs, uh, one such as being able to uh, use radio interoperability. What happened from those grants previously was that even when the government gave out that money, those organizations bought the same radio systems that didn't speak to each other. So one of the lessons for cyber was that if we start giving out a bunch of grants for cyber, then uh, as the uh, adversary matures, that money would have just been wasted. So the government took tack and admitted, I believe that the government can't save you. Essentially the government started producing risk assessments that everyone could use. Hence the NIST cybersecurity framework was developed. It's a tool that allows any organization to use it as they see fit to develop their risk management strategies. Following this, the government developed a process called ISALS, Information Sharing and Analysis Organizations. Uh, I led that process and what that allowed you to do is any group of organizations or trusted partners could come together, share cyber threat information with each other and have a relationship with the Department of Homeland Security if they chose to. And as we roll now to 2021, the realization from all of that over the last 19, 20 years is that we've had time to adjust and adapt and 20 years in cyber time now and the hacker world has turned into about three years. We are falling behind. The exploits are getting more sophisticated. Uh, A lot of the tools that are being created and sold and organizations are making billions of dollars are not effective. There has to be a holistic approach to uh, risk management Uh, And this is not a government affair. It is a a system, community affair, much like responding to a pandemic. So, Mike, it looks
2: like the Biden administration is taking cybersecurity very seriously. They seem to be putting in some good leaders. Um, Do you like what you're seeing so far? And do you think, going back to one of your passions, the ISOs, do you think that will have an expanded role in that public-private partnership?
0: Yes, I think one of the benefits of the Biden administration coming in is I'm seeing a lot of familiar faces, people who've done a lot of the hard work and a lot of the hard research to put the NIST cybersecurity framework in place, to put ISALs in place. And so they know the importance of moving quickly. They don't have to come in and study and learn. They know what's available. They know where the holes are. Um, To give credit to the Trump administration, um, one of the things that they did was to put a uh, executive order in place that said uh, there has to be an assigned risk manager for every federal agency, meaning that someone is responsible. And as you know, uh, obvious as that sounds, uh, that sort of thing was not in place previously. So if you add what the Biden administ- what the Obama administration did and you add the things that the Trump administration tried to do, I think we're in a good place. Now, the major issue that we typically have is on the Hill. For years, we've seen bills coming out which specified a direction of left or right or up the middle and nothing happens. That leads a lot of us skeptics to believe that uh, people on the Hill who are being funded by the largest tech companies don't move because it's not financially viable for their future campaigns. Our cyber life cannot be attached to the whims of politics.
2: Do you think though, following the Solar Winds attack, that some areas like supply chain may be addressed by legislation?
0: Well, I'm sure you hate hearing uh, a question answered with a question. But did the OPM breach change anything?
2: It didn't. So I had the opportunity
0: to speak to a top three uh, NSA person a few years ago. And I asked, hey, we're always talking about this uh, Pearl Harbor event for cyber. I said, if I had asked you the day before the OPM breach occurred, if you thought that 21 million records of secure uh, individuals, their families, their personal records, uh, our partners in other countries, military, police, law enforcement at the federal level, if you, if we Thought that that was going to occur. Would you consider that a Pearl Harbor event? And he wouldn't answer the question. And so, to me, that says that we keep moving the bar forward to accommodate our not being ready to do what we need to do. So, solar winds comes along. Probably the thing that will help with solar winds is it doesn't seem to stop. Every two weeks, we hear about something else related to SolarWinds, right? We have no grasp on how wide it is or what the long-term damage is. And I think that will be the motivator.
1: Mike, as, as you've just stated, and, and, and I'll obviously call it in your book pretty clearly, um, you know, organizations need to take the proper steps to protect themselves, right? And, and, and the point I'm making is, and as you've made, is that we can't rely on the government, nor should we really, um, there's some benefits that we hope could come out of there, but, you know, time is, is passing us by. We can't just kind of sit back, if you will. You've talked about the importance, which I completely agree on uh, the collaboration, so threat intelligence sharing and the ISOs and, and, and the value that they bring. Looking beyond the threat intelligence sharing capabilities that we now have out there, what else are you recommending? What else are you actually starting to see that's making a difference?
0: So I'm saying that we should assume the worst. I'm also saying that you should not say you're doing cybersecurity if you are not able to understand the vulnerabilities, see the threats, and to measure or understand the consequences. Uh, When I give speeches, I talk about how cybersecurity is actually just a buzzword. It's risk management. If we were in a country where, an organ, where the government told you what to do, what hardware to use, what software to use, cybersecurity would mean something. In this continuum of a free society, we get to make choices, right, based on what we perceive to be our risk. Risk management is you understanding the vulnerabilities, the threats, and the consequences, and then making a decision about what's important to you. This is why government intervention becomes so important. We like to take the word standards and relate it to regulation. And that's why nothing happens. Organizations, companies do not want regulation. But in some cases, we have to have standards. If I'm at my house using my hairdryer, 110, 120 outlet, I can go to your house and plug that same hairdryer We have to have some levels of standard to assure that we can get to some place where when I'm doing my risk assessment to understand the consequences and you're doing yours and we are in a interdependent digital society that we're on the same page. That's what's missing.
2: So, Michael, just to follow up on that, the, the standards lay that foundation, right let's face it they are not necessarily able to keep up with the latest threats that's why also you augment that i assume with the isos right Mm -hmm. that you have then the threat intel sharing to also give you that insight into what else is happening with the threat actors that if you have to augment that foundation laid by the the compliance to standards then you need to take that action is that a way of then managing that risk
0: So here's what's so important about the concept of ISALs. The ISACs have been around since 99. Financial services was the first and the idea was that we bring together these like critical infrastructure entities and they can share information, reduce risk, share information with trusted partners so that we don't have to continuously try to come up with new regulation that hurts industry. What we found over time is of the eight to 10 uh, ISACs, it becomes like a club, right? The biggest, the wealthiest organizations all participate. They share and trust with each other. That's not the way America works. America works in the communities, right? We saw that with the pandemic. And so the ISAL concept allowed any group Regardless of what sector they're in, subsector, as long as they trust each other and as long as they're participating in the process of sharing cyber threat information, if something happens to you and you're one of my trusted partners, it should not happen to me, right? That limits cascading effects. The way things are set up now with the ISACs which are very effective, and they work across sectors, energy sector, financial sector, telecommunications. What happens is as they are sharing information with each other and they are putting mitigations in place, that does not mean that the rest of society is not going to get wiped out.
2: How have you overcome the the typical... I'm willing to consume and ingest threat and tell information, but I'm unwilling to share, you know, how, you know th- that bi-directional, how do you encourage that bi-directional sharing?
0: Value, so everyone has to see value in uh, what they are providing. Meaning that, uh, in some organizations, ice House have set themselves up like this. In order to receive, you've got to contribute. Right. And so there has to be an ecosystem set up that is based on that premise. Um, I think the way that we did things originally, uh, as a forerunner to all of this information sharing, we had to go through those pain points. At this point, it's time to rev it up. Uh, Let me say, you know, since I haven't been in the government, Uh, I can actually speak very straightforward and honestly, and that's the most important thing to me, right? Is the ability to say what needs to be said, right? And what needs to be said is we need cyber leadership. Leadership is when you get, when you stand for something and you pull other people in that direction, even though they don't understand at that moment, it may not be popular. But someone at a level that is consistent with what we consider a uh, national leader has to start pulling people towards a certain direction. So,
2: Michael, on, on May 12th, President Biden signed an executive order to improve the nation's cybersecurity and protect federal government networks. And an aspect of that EO is the removal of barriers to threat intel sharing between government and private sector. And that that seems in line with some of the things they are trying to accomplish. Do you think the steps they're taking is gonna help?
0: Well, Stan, as you know, uh, an executive order does not define new law. An executive order is the implementation of the laws that already exist. So when we talk about removing barriers, this is more of a social exercise Um, The government has to take leadership and there has to be someone at the helm who gives instruction and makes sure that those instructions are followed. In 2015, there was an executive order that essentially said the same thing, where we're going to remove barriers to private sector information sharing, and it gave instruction to federal agencies about how they share with each other making the NKIC at DHS the hub of cybersecurity. The main barrier has always been trust. The second barrier has always been where a company will say, if I tell you about an incident that has occurred that involves you, you could sue me to get the uh, origins of that information, which puts me at jeopardy. Well, those acts back in 2015, supported by those EOs, essentially removed those barriers. And I can tell you today that we have the same issue. Mm. So it's a trust issue that the government has to find the leadership to move not only the private sector, but federal agents. Passed.
2: Understood. Thank you. And, and as far as just in general, the other aspects of the executive order, what are your thoughts about raising the bar of cybersecurity implementations and some of the examples they gave in the executive order? Do you think they'll be effective? Again, to your point, it's not law. So right. maybe,
0: yeah. So essentially, this leadership that I keep harping on, requires that someone step forward in an entrepreneurial way and tells everyone else where we're going. That someone is the government, very amorphous. We need individuals who become the face of cybersecurity, who are pointing the direction in the same way that we've always had CDC leaders for pandemics. One of the major issues that we have to face as a society is when an event happens, we come out with a huge response. Cybersecurity issues and incidents and hacking and data exfiltration are occurring every day. We did not need the colonial pipeline to make the government come together at the level of the National Security Council to come up with a set of activities. These activities should have been pushed forward a long time ago. There's there's, nothing- nothing Certainly
2: the the pipeline incident certainly seemed to be the tipping point, but your point is it didn't need to be. We have enough incidents, right?
0: So it actually has an opposite effect. People tend to think that we're only doing these things because of solar winds and the colonial pipeline, as opposed to this needs to be a way of life for us. Our society is becoming digitized, including our identities. If we're gonna move into this 21st century, we have to have a new approach to doing cyber and digital business that includes protecting those systems and those assets and of course things like our privacy and our data
1: mike i think you're actually taking us right down the path i want to go next right that cyber leadership and that requirement and need that's that's lacking out there and i want to tie it into some of the new work that you're you're involved with and specifically the smart city initiatives and The one down in Jacksonville, Florida, I think is extremely interesting that you've been pulled into. And to me, it ties into the need that you just described. Getting people to understand the need, the value of cybersecurity, getting them to understand why it's important to actually bake it into what they're trying to accomplish in this new smart city concept and where we're going in the future. I think it'd be great for you to share how you got involved first, but then also what it is that you're starting to influence there from a cyber perspective.
0: Sure, so uh, in Jacksonville there's an organization called the Jacksonville Transit Authority. It is their uh, citywide transit organization. And uh, they had a requirement or they put out a plan to develop autonomous vehicles lanes. Uh, It's called a U2C project. And uh, this lane will go around the city uh, on a straight couple of turns at first, but then they look to expand. Uh, It's one of the first efforts like this across the country where you will have uh, commercial vehicles that do not have a driver. So you can imagine the cybersecurity requirements for that, right? Health and safety and welfare. Uh, What becomes important here is that Jacksonville had the forethought To require of the contracting companies, let's think about it. This is a big contracting uh, opportunity that just happens to involve autonomous vehicle companies, right? So the bidders for this project were big construction companies who cybersecurity is not their first thought, right? And so it allowed the opportunity to put Cyber requirements on all of the vendors that are participating. That includes the electrical companies, the ones that will build the networks, the ones that will even be doing the painting. Right. I and mean,
2: that's the way to do it right. You build it yeah. into the contract
0: language itself. But then additionally, it creates an opportunity to train the community. And the goal is to start to develop a culture of cybersecurity, not just for the community that will use the autonomous vehicles, but for the people that work at the transit organization who now will be responsible. These, some of these people have been working in transportation for 20, 30 years. And the idea is that we have to grow from the bottom up and not the top down the way that we've been trying to do it. Now, This coincides with another effort that I have, and I've been working with HUD and Department of Commerce uh, to figure out how we implement something like this. But we want to take uh, all of these cyber programs, all of these things with training and risk management and protection of critical infrastructure and move these programs, which do not even hit their Endpoint In most cases, they're great programs, but they never reach the people that they're meant to reach in a lot of cases. And we want to move those down to the local levels. So now we are building a culture of cybersecurity in communities, right. And now we start to solve problems that have been long standing problems. How do you get more kids? to be interested in cybersecurity careers? How do you do more training? How do you get senior citizens to know not to click on that button? How do you get people who work in critical infrastructure to understand the importance of digital risk management? All raise, of those- that,
2: Raise raise that bar of awareness yes. across the board. Yes. Now I was intrigued, you, know, you had an article back in May, 2020 about taking what you're doing with the smart city technology as a way as also minimizing the spread of COVID-19. I was really, you know, uh, interested in in that concept. Can you expand on that?
0: Sure. So the one thing that this uh, pandemic has done for us is it showed us clearly that the government is not coming to save you and that there is a responsibility of businesses and individuals to um, do the right thing. In pandemic language, it's good hygiene. In cyber language, it's good cyber hygiene, right? And risk management. We are all exercising risk management right now. We understand the risk management that we are exercising from a pandemic because someone explains it to us every day on the television. You actually even see posters. You see signs when you walk into buildings that say you must wear a mask, you must wash your hands please do this. Please stay to the right. Please stay to the left. Let me tell you something very interesting. In all these years and all this discussion that we're having and the fact that uh, cyber crime has reached a level that we could have never imagined and this world is becoming digitized and we're becoming more vulnerable every day. With all of that being said, I'm in Washington, D.C., I can get on the bus, I can go 10 miles around the city, I can get on the Metro, I can ride the train from Maryland to Virginia, I can go into any building, I can uh, walk down the street on the uh, most traveled routes in the world's most powerful city, and there is not one sign. There is not one piece of public awareness information, information, that tells you that you should be digitally secure, that you should be practicing risk management. And I can assure you that if a person is not thinking of those things and practicing those things in their private life, why would they all of a sudden start practicing those things or thinking about those things in your critical infrastructure environment? Not going to happen. And so, um, we learned a lot about cyber from the response to the pandemic and from understanding the human condition. What would a human do in this situation?
1: Mike, I think that's that's a really interesting way you took that and how you connected the two. But the key that you've called out several times now in the conversation is changing that mindset, right and driving the right culture. And, and driving it as far down that chain, if you will, of, you know, kind of embedding it into the, just the way we normally think and how we're going to approach just taking care of ourselves, if you will, kind of our own physical aspects. And that translates into making people better overall for their cyber capability. I think that's that's quite insightful aspect of that. Is there anything else that you wanted to share that kind of looks at the point of resiliency and how we can all better be better thinking in that manner of being more resilient in and of itself beyond being cyber secure, right? Being being resilient, because we have to just deal with these things as they're coming at us.
0: Sure. Um, The world that we live in for safety, efficiency effectiveness is becoming more digitized. Everyone knows that. However, we're not making the assumption that the threats that go along with all of this digitization is uh, consistent. And for that reason, even people who may not have been affected by a cyber attack, by the loss of data, by systems going down, everyone, the number of potential victims grows every day, right? And so we are actually increasing the opportunities for cascading effects. Um, The way that you limit that is simple awareness. And people say, Michael, what can I do about this? Well, it's not so much about what you can do about it, but just by being aware of all the threats that exist in your life, you have an opportunity to limit the consequences to you. And I'll give you a quick example. Just by understanding that Alexa is listening to you all the time, how else would it be able to respond when you call? It's listening to you all the time. Just being aware that when you have an alarm system in your house that has a camera on it, that there's the potential that someone else could be looking through that camera and not just the organization that you have a contract with.
2: Mike, that's exactly what we saw with the Burkata hack. As far as the cameras, 150,000 cameras now,
0: um, you don't know who really is behind them. So, um There is a part of the training, societal training, that is missing in our quest to become uh, a digital society. Completely agree. Completely
1: agree, Mike. Truly appreciate the time you've taken to share with us the work that you've done, the history kind of taking us through, really what, what kind of accelerated things for you, right? And where you are taking us next. So thanks for sharing with us today, Mike. Appreciate your time. Thank you. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for listening to the Reimagining Cyber podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you would like to have us cover a specific topic of interest, feel free to reach out to us and you can find out how in the show notes and don't forget to subscribe. This podcast was brought to you by CyberRes, a microfocus line of business, where our mission is to deliver cyber resilience by engaging people, process and technology to protect, detect and evolve.